Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzstrapper. On today's show, regulating outer space. Recently, the House Subcommittee on Space held a hearing. Regulating space, innovation, liberty, and international obligations. In that hearing, they discussed a White House report from the last administration, President Obama, uh, under the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act of 2015. You will hear that on the show as CSLCA. Got a lot of fun acronyms today. Essentially, the Obama administration was saying there's a gap in regulation for innovative space activities. And what do we mean by that? We're talking about private missions to the moon, private missions to Mars or asteroid mining, things that you might have heard about in the context of companies like SpaceX. And of course, uh, the report recommended a way to fill this gap in regulation. It said we need a, quote, mission authorization regime, where essentially the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, would head up a panel to review requests for innovative activities and approve those that are in compliance with domestic laws, national security interests, and international obligations like Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, something we've talked about on the show before. Now, unsurprisingly, Republicans uh, rejected the report, said it was overly regulatory, but after we got the partisan jabs out of the way, uh, we got to the more serious discussion of what should the role of government be in space. So that's what we'll be talking about today. And I've got two guests joining me who've talked about space on the show before. Jim Dunstan, longtime space lawyer and founder of Mobius Legal Group. Jim, thanks for joining. Thank you, Evan. And Baron Soka, also a longtime space lawyer. He's actually the first person I ever met who was a space lawyer. And yes, that is actually a thing. So Baron, thanks for joining. Uh, besides us, have you met any others? No, thank God. Um, but anyway, uh, let's get to this. So Jim, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you agree with the general criticism from Republicans that it was overly regulatory, but we are operating in a world where there's going to be a government role in space. It's not just going to be some Wild West where people are launching rockets willy-nilly. So what should the government role be? And what are these concerns from Democrats about how we need to have more regulation in this space? Well, in terms of what the role of government is, we have to go back to what our international obligations are. And we talked about Article 6 before. But I think a lot of people misunderstand it. What Article 6 says first is that countries, nations are responsible for their own activities and the activities of their citizens, the non-governmental activities. And then it says that uh, nations must authorize and continually supervise those activities of non-governmental. But the real question is, what does that mean? What does authorization mean? And what does continuing supervision mean? And what we've talked about in in the past and what uh, Baron and I have been working on is, is the notion that it's all about a government's own risk tolerance, really. Because when it comes down to it, a government could say, we're not going to do anything. We're going to let anybody do anything that they want. And if something bad happens and we're on the hook, we're willing to take that risk. And then the other you know, extreme of that would be, we are going to regulate the heck out of it. In fact, we're going to prohibit private enterprise in space because we're, we're so risk adverse, we don't want anything bad to happen. And so nothing can happen. And when so you talk about risk, you're talking about tra- the trade-off is liability, right? It's yes. who, who pays if something goes wrong. So the more government involves itself the more that government will be on the hook. And if governments take a more hands-off approach, they can kind of point the finger at the private company and said, hey, they're the ones who exploded that rocket, not me. They're the ones that should have to pay for the debris that fell in the waters of X country. Well, except for ultimately, it is still going to be the government that's going to be liable. So take, take an example of asteroid mining. And somebody decides they want to bring an asteroid back and they want to process it in low Earth orbit. If, I, if I'm risk adverse, I say, no, 
I'm not going to allow you to do that. I'm going to regulate you out of existence because I don't want that potential liability of that rock coming back and not going into low Earth orbit, in fact, hitting the surface of the Earth somewhere. Because if it hits on the surface of the Earth, I'm absolutely liable for that. There's no sort of negligence theory. I'm, you know, I'm completely liable for that. But then there could be countries that say, gee, that could be worth trillions of dollars. And so I'm willing to take that risk that something bad can happen because there's an economic benefit of doing it. And so it's, a re- it's that trade-off that we're really dealing with here. And it seems like in a bipartisan way almost, and you might be lamenting this, that there was a general sense at the end of the hearing that, you know, it'd be nice if we could figure out a way to not have to regulate innovative activities, if we could just let people do their thing. But we can't because it's not realistic and it's illegal under the law because we have the government just has to supervise all these activities. Is that a fair assessment of the situation here that, yes, it'd be great to have permissionless innovation in space, but just too bad because, quote, national security interests will always trump commercial interests. That's something that was said in the hearing. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I think the problem is people, all of the questions and all of the scenarios that were brought up during the hearing on both sides of the aisle, by the way, both Democrats and Republicans, involve situations that are already highly regulated, um, that we already we already can stop the bad stuff that they were that they were envisioning happening. We don't need new regulations to make sure that people don't bump into each other in, in orbit or that people get rid of their satellites at end of, end of life. We have multiple sets of regulations that already require that. Why do we need another regime on top of that is, is the question that I have. Well, let, let me just to jump in here to explain. So right now we have, the United States has implemented part of that Article 6 responsibility by licensing launch and reentry. That's what the FAA does. And then the FCC regulates uh, satellites in space. And, and, and in theory, that's because the FCC regulates spectrum usage. But as Jim notes, the FCC has attached a bunch of other requirements like station keeping, which is how far you can move your satellite in a geostationary slot or orbital debris. So that is effectively the de facto regulation of, of what goes up into and what happens in Earth orbit. There's another regime for remote sensing, but, but basically that's covered orbit. What we're talking about now is what happens beyond orbit. And it's things like, do two missions uh, conflict with each other? Do two parties on the moon end up interfering with each other? That's one category. And as Jim rightly says, that's something that ultimately the U.S. government is responsible for if the United States and, let's say, a Chinese company end up uh, causing interference to each other. That's something that is going to be adjudicated between the United States government and that foreign government or foreign company. And it's up to the U.S. in domestic law to decide in advance how to handle that risk. But there's another category of things we're talking about here under the Outer Space Treaty that aren't quite so simple which is, you know, in law, we often talk about rules of reason, you know, uh, how much is enough, you balance, you have reasonable, uh, reasonableness. That's sort of what tort law does. And then there are some things that we just ban outright. And the Outer Space Treaty does ban certain things outright, like harmful contamination, putting uh, weapons in space, appropriation of territory. Those are things that I think the United States government actually does have a responsibility to make sure don't happen in advance. And that's why, to get back to your original question here, Evan, I think the the answer between the Democrats and Republicans at that hearing lies somewhere in the middle. There's got to be some system for ensuring that when U.S. companies go and do things out in the solar system, that they are not going to violate one of those per se prohibitions in the treaty. 
And you can do that without having a heavy-handed regulatory approach. And that's what Jim and I have proposed, which is basically the concept of instead of having to go and get permission from the government to do something, instead registering your mission so that everyone knows what they're what you're doing and certifying that you're going to comply with those basic requirements and then having a system in place for adjudicating disputes over interference. So I want to get more into your recommendations later, but let's just talk about what the current system is because people might be scratching their heads and thinking, I see articles all the time about SpaceX and Elon Musk doing something cool in space. And President Obama has gotten a lot of credit for being a president that embraced the private sector role in space, despite the general criticism that he was too regulatory as a president. And an interesting uh, quote recently from uh, Consumer Technology Association's Gary Shapiro, he said, Obama was pro-tech but anti-business. Kind of an interesting distinction he's made there. Could you say the same thing about President Obama, that he was pro-space but anti-business? And is that because the system now is not sufficient? So even though, Jim, you've argued that there's plenty on the books, you can find an agency, you can find a rule for almost every scenario you can imagine, it's not necessarily an ideal system. What are the problems with the current system? Well, well, the problem with the current system is it's, as Barron pointed out, it's highly redundant. I mean, I actually came up with a scenario whereby if you wanted to fly a mission that needed spectrum, that was also a remote sensing mission that was launching from the United States and had NASA backing, you would actually have to go to four different agencies and demonstrate to them that you that, that you were going to comply with their orbital debris mitigation. So you got four different masters at, at that point. And so I, I think for almost anything that we can conceive of in low Earth orbit and maybe even up to the moon, we've already kind of figured that out. But we figured it out in a patchwork system that is highly complex. And as you mentioned at the beginning, it's not transparent at all. And that's my biggest concern about the Section 108 uh, Obama administration report is it it purports to set up this interagency review of innovative applications, which looks to me an awful lot like the ITAR regime, which, What's is, that? which is the, the interna international trafficking and arms regulations, which was put into place following a Chinese long march um, failure back in the 90s, uh, a bunch of engineers, aerospace engineers who are who were being helpful, and they're always helpful, essentially gave uh, the Chinese, the reason why their rocket blew up. And of course, that rocket looks an awful lot like an ICBM. And so we're essentially, we're telling the Chinese how to build you know, missiles. And so we put in this really onerous regime within the United States uh, to control the export of, uh, of missile technology. Well, that's filtered down into everything related to space because anything going into space is a missile technology. And the problem with that regime and the problem with the Section 108 is it's completely opaque. You essentially drop your application in a hopper, you cross your fingers, and then you wait. And you never know what's going to happen with it. So, let, so let's uh, kind of hone in yeah. on that because in general, we like to think that when government and private sector do business together, that it's a meritocracy. That companies, whether, you know, let's say it's building a tunnel or a bridge, right? Companies will come together, they'll bid, and the government is supposed to choose the guy that's got the best thing for the best price. And, and it protects the taxpayers. And we'd like to think that in the space context, if we're going to have the government authorizing private missions, that that's how they make the decision. But you and I were chatting a little bit before the show about how you end up with bureaucrats picking winners and losers. And this is kind of a concept you see all the time, especially on a libertarian podcast where people are complaining that the government is placing itself 
as as the arbiter of who wins and who doesn't. But what does that look like in space? I mean, if not the best bidder for the best price, why would government make a decision on any other grounds when it comes to space? Well, for one thing, we we never get to know why what the rationale is with the decision. If you're denied one of these licenses, you're never even told why. It's just basically you know denied, and the reasons are myriad. They're everything from you may be competing with a government program, um, and there may be a NASA program where they would like to do the same thing that you're doing, and therefore they're not going to approve it. All the way up to there's some national security interests that's unarticulated that that dooms your application and so that's my big problem and our big problem with this with this proposed emission authorization regime is you never even get to know you know why you're denied or you know you know whose ox did you gore yeah and if we're talking about buzzwords so that people can kind of differentiate between the approaches here mission authorization that's something that the obama administration proposed what baron and jim are proposing is mission registration and apart from the word sounding less onerous than authorized what does that how does that help companies and how does that help consumers eventually we're hoping that these benefits these trillions of dollars we're talking about in trade-offs that that's going to somehow benefit society and hopefully in our lifetimes how does registration help the problems caused by authorization? Well, Jim's really an expert here. He's, he's being too modest. He's leaving out that he fought this battle in what is the most dramatic, in many ways, untold story of space enterprise ever. Jim, do you want to tell about Mircorp? Sure, I'll, I'll do a brief. So back in the late 90s, uh, there was a, a Russian space station called Mir, uh, which is Russian for peace. And in fact, NASA uh, worked with with the Russians to fly American astronauts up uh, up to Mir. We kind of forget that now that we've got the International Space Station. Well, as the International Space Station was about to come online, the Russian Space Agency was going to dump this you know this five bedroom um, uh, vehicle, manned vehicle, into the ocean. And there was a, a group of Westerners that got together and went to Russia and said, "Hey, we would like to buy this from you." And they first said, "Well, we can't actually sell it to you." We said, well, we'd like to lease it from you. And so, in fact, we put into place, and I, and I did the negotiations on it, uh, so we had a lease for the Mir space station. And actually, they flew a manned mission, the first true commercial manned mi mission in, in history, uh, went up to the Mir and determined that it was actually in much better shape. There was a lot of uh, misinformation going on being put out that, oh, this thing is decrepit, it's, you know, it's, it's going to kill people, when in fact it was still in very good shape. And so the idea was to have a private uh, space station for Mir. And we would fly tourists up to it. Dennis Tito, the first American tourist who flew the ISS, originally was going to fly to Mir. Um, and so, but the problem was it was it was deorbiting very, very slowly. And we needed to find a way to boost it back up. Well, sending another rocket up with propellant was just going to be too expensive, given where the financing was. And so the engineers came up with a really cool thing called an electrodynamic tether, which is essentially a, a kilometer-long wire that glows. And we were going to export it to Russia, fly it up. It's much smaller than taking all that gas up. Um, and so we had to apply for, for under ITAR for an export license. And we did. And we waited and we waited and we waited for months and months and months. No response yet. You know, everything, you know, status inquiries, all we wanted. And it was in process, in process. Well, meanwhile, uh, there was a lot of political pressure on, on the Russians to deorbit Mir. And eventually they did. Uh, the Western company couldn't come up with more financing because the rumors were put out that this thing was going to get dumped in the ocean, uh, couldn't get the ITAR license, and so it eventually was, was thrown into the ocean. 
the ITAR license was granted the day after. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. And the point of that story is to answer your question, Evan, because that story illustrates what happens in the black box process, where if you have, as the administration has proposed, the previous administration, if you have a regime where uh, you ask for permission and then it goes into some interagency working group, NASA or some other government agency can for its own reasons, say, we don't want competition. We're going to kill your effort. And they can effectively do that. And so the difference at the end of the day between uh, a mission authorization and a mission registration system is sort of the presumption that's set. And what we're essentially proposing is that people should be able to do things like that. And if there's a problem, if, you, if, if it's in fact the case that something in that uh, mission is going to violate the Outer Space Treaty or create a real problem uh, in, in the U.S., yeah, there should be a role for the U.S. government to do something about it, but that should be the exception rather than the rule. Right. So I want to, uh, at the end of the show, kind of uh, give you a chance to talk about South by Southwest, Baron. But just to sum up this topic, we've got the hearing recently. Uh, we talked about the general sentiment kind of being a throw up your hands and say, well, it's too bad that the national security and other considerations are going to kind of ruin this for everyone. Uh, but what should people be looking out for? How is your plan being received? Um, is the industry kind of getting behind the Obama plan just for certainty? Um, what should listeners who are interested in private space exploration or public space exploration be looking out for in the coming months and years, uh, given that these are kind of where the fault lines are? Well, I, I think we are on track. What, what's fascinating here, of course, is the fact that there's been almost no space, domestic space legislation, you know, almost ever. We've got a few bits and pieces of the CSLCA. That's which, part of why we keep going back to the 60s. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what's innovative and interesting is the fact that there is interest on the on the Hill, on both sides, on both the House and on the Senate side, uh, to do something, to, to move, sort of advance the ball. Because for my entire career, 30 plus years doing space law, it's always, these issues have always just been kicked, the can's been kicked down the road. Um, and it's always, oh, we'll get to it. It's some point. Well, they're getting to it now. So that's the fascinating part. We're, we're dealing with some of the issues that when I was coming out of law school, I was hope to be able to cut my teeth on as a, you know, as a young lawyer. I'm now a you know, much graying lawyer and finally getting to it. So that's the exciting part. So keep stay tuned. This is not something that's going to happen in five or six years. This is something that's going to happen within a year, within a two years maximum. So things are, are going to happen. Where it's going to fall out, I, I don't know. I mean, the problem is on both sides, on both the House and the Senate side, the space committees have been generally bi more bipartisan than, than you'll find anywhere else. But yet there was still a fair amount of partisanship going on. I mean, it was it was pretty clear that um, both you know the, the 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 committee chairman Lamar Smith and the and the subcommittee chair Babin. I mean, their opening statements, they were just basically taking pot shots at the Obama administration for no particularly good reason, for no substantive reasons of what was wrong with the Section 108 report. It was essentially just DOA because it was a, it, it was a Democratic initiative. Yeah, and we like to think that tech policy and in particular space policy can be bipartisan. But of course, the disease of partisanship knows no topic boundaries. So, you know, even though maybe the at the end of the hearing when no one was watching anymore, everyone was having a great conversation. But at the beginning, people have to throw out their jabs. But uh Speaking of the future, I mean, Baron and I were just at South by Southwest in Austin, which was the second biggest tech gathering in what the world. That's pretty cool. And in case you didn't think Baron Soka was cool already, he did a panel on space at South by Southwest. So give give you a chance to let that sit in. But uh, you did a space panel called Making Law on Mars. And um, we just talked about kind of the 
legal and regulatory regime that governs all this stuff, one of those innovative activities would be a private space mission to Mars. How does that all fit in? And uh, are we going to get to see something so cool in the, in the near future? Well, so basically what I said is that any private space mission on Mars is going to be dealing with the, the, the statute that is passed in the next few years, because that's going to begin to create the legal framework for dealing with everything, as you said, from asteroids to the moon, to Mars, to circumnavigating the moon, as, uh, as Elon has proposed. So uh, it's important that we get these things right. And, and in a nutshell, what I said is that this is not as simple as permissionless innovation, uh, meaning no role for government, versus uh, heavy-handed regulation. The answer is somewhere in the middle. It's, it's pretty close to permissionless innovation. That, that is the right spirit. We do think that the presumption here should be set in favor of innovation. But there does have to be a legal mechanism that's going to govern everything that happens all the way up to a private space colony on Mars. And, it, and it's going to boil down to some system of do you comply with the basic requirements of the treaty? And then is there a mechanism for ensuring that if you do something that's problematic, that, that, that uh, interferes with their parties, that the U.S. government can make you stop? And this is where I, I want to be clear. Republicans, I think, are wrong in, in making this overly simplistic and saying this is just about getting the government out of space and so on. And the administration does have a point. There's one line in the memo that they issued, this Section 108 report, that says that there has to be some ultimate mechanism for getting companies to, to stop doing stuff. I think that's right. And, and I think if you think about it for a second, that has to be true. We would want to make sure the Chinese government has a way of making a Chinese company stop if they do something harmful and destructive in space, as they've done before. They've shot down their own satellite, which created a huge debris cloud. You could imagine them doing things like that in the future. And these are the really tricky questions of international law and how, how U.S. parties deal with each other and then with, with foreign parties. That's the stuff that's going to have to be done in this legislation. And so that's what we're working on. I, I would encourage everyone when they watch this debate, just, just to remember that this is actually starting us down a path from which there is a path dependence. So we, what we do now really will matter for centuries. Yeah. And people have been saying that forever, but of course we are now at an inflection point and it will be really interesting to see how, if a bill gets passed in the next couple of years, how that impacts uh, where we go. And uh, I want to mention that Barron's South by Southwest panel, there'll be a video of that. And uh, if it's up before we post this podcast, we'll make sure to put that in the notes. Uh, Jim, any final words before we end the show? So I, I think the, the most important thing is whatever we end up with has got to be transparent. It's got to be appealable, and we've got to know what's going on. If I have a fight with the FCC over Spectrum, um, I get to go to court. And in those court documents, everybody sees what that fight is, You know, which megahertz I want, and I want to use it for something or other. But if we've got a, a system, call it mission authorization, call it regulation, in which I ask the government to do X, and they tell me no, and I don't even get to know why, that's a system that's broken from the outset. And so we've got to have a system which you know, meets the, the Administrative Procedures Act, isn't arbitrary and capricious, and, we, and everybody can, can know what everybody wants, wants to do. And that's the important part. And it's our requirement under international law, under the Registration Convention, is we've got to tell the rest of the world what we're going to do in space. Yeah, we've got to hope that uh, the explanation is more than just national security, sorry, because that, you know, that happens in so many areas of tech policy, and I'm sure you have a lot of sympathizers in the privacy community. Um, but that's it for today's show. My guests have been Jim Dunstan, longtime space lawyer and founder of Mobius Legal Group. Jim, thanks for joining. 
Thank you. And of course, the one and only Baron Soka, who is so cool that he just got back from South by Southwest doing a panel on this very cool topic. Baron, thanks for being cool. Not as good as your vaping panel. Oh, yes. I mean, we only tackle the most important issues in the tech policy space here on the Tech Policy Podcast. So uh, find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Feel free to send your hate mail to me or Baron. Uh, we'll both read it. Um, and uh, that's it for today. Uh, we'll see you next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.